CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com. So let me begin by uh, talking about uh, Cesar Fernandez de las Peñas, who we're talking to tonight. He completed his bachelor's degree in physical therapy in 2000, and uh, he obtained his first, let me put this, his first PhD uh, in biomedical sciences in 2007 under the supervision of the the, the famous and well-known professor Lars Arnant Nielsen at the Sensory Motor Interaction Center at the University of Aalborg in Denmark. In 2008, he obtained his second PhD, as if one wasn't enough, uh, in physical therapy under the supervision of Drs. Perea and Cuadrado in Spain. And uh, in 2012, he gets his doctoral degree in neurosciences, the highest academic degree in Scandinavian countries, again at the Sensory Motor Interaction Center at the University of Aalborg in Denmark. He is the head of the division of the Department of Physical Therapy, Occupational Therapy, Rehabilitation and Physical Medicine at the Universidad Rey Juan Carlos, Spain. Apologies for the poor uh, uh, pronunciation there, uh, but uh, I'll do my best. Here, he is also the group leader of the pain research group at the same university. He combines clinical research with private clinical practice. And the research activities of his group, which we're mostly interested in, is his neurosciences and assessment of management of pain. He's been invited as a speaker to give lectures in more than 50 international and worldwide meetings with their related published abstracts and proceedings. And he's published over 250 publications in journal citation reports. And uh, he's uh, also published in uh, approximately 150 of the top 10 journals. So uh, 150 times in the top 10 journals. Most of his published articles concentrate on human pain research and the interaction between motor control and chronic pain. The most relevant topics to us are the articles which are focused on neck pain, headaches, carpal tunnel syndrome, lateral epicondyalgia, and whiplash, breast cancer, and neurophysiological effects of manual therapy. And he has also published several chapters of textbooks and is the editor of seven textbooks on manual therapy, dry needling and headaches. And in fact, his latest textbook, which will be published later this year in Australia, is titled Manual Therapy for Musculoskeletal Pain Syndromes, an Evidence and Clinical Informed Approach. And he's written that book together with another uh, guest of ours on this webinar, Dr. Jan Domerholt. So, Cesar, are you ready to speak with us? Yes, Henry, thank you. Ah, oh, fantastic. That's super. I always like to hear the voice of our guests, especially when they're overseas. There's nothing worse than having all these people waiting and then I can't find you. But fortunately, we found you. So thank you very much for joining us. I know you're very busy and we've uh, waited a few months to get you, but I'm sure it's going to be worthwhile. Thank you very much. No, thank you to you for your kind invitation. Thank you. Now, my first question to you, Cesar, is much of your research is based on myofascial trigger points. And for example, in 2010, you did some research on referred pain areas of active myofascial trigger points in the head, neck, shoulder muscles in chronic tension type headaches. Uh, You've done some more work with um, 
uh, neck pain and tension, comparison of the short-term outcomes between trigger point dry needling and trigger point manual therapy for the management of chronic mechanical neck pain. So you've done a lot of work in this area. And at the moment, there is a debate uh, going on, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, about the presence and existence of myofascial trigger points. Uh, my, I'm referring, of course, to Quintner, Bove and Cohen, December 2014, when they published an article in Rheumatology, the journal Rheumatology. What's your view about what they've been saying about the existence of myofascial trigger points? And uh, really what they're saying is that we should uh, throw it all out and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's not valid. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, uh, this is a, a strong question for, for the beginning. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that um, this paper has uh, produced a huge debate uh, within the trigger point people around the world. I, I remember some months ago when Jan Domelhor and other people say me if I read the paper. And when I read, I really was surprised yeah. because this is very bad, um, very bad paper for, for the trigger point um, community. However, I, I, I believe that uh, it doesn't matter because many people ask uh, to me to write uh, letters to editors or other papers uh, against this one. But I think that we don't need to spend our time because it's just one paper uh, against more than 100 papers showing that trigger points are real entity uh, for physical therapies. And there are another 50 uh, papers about the clinical and neurophysiological relevance of the trigger point. So why we should be afraid of one paper against more than 100? Always in all things, I think that we will have people against manual therapy, against uh, physical therapy, against trigger point, against neurodynamics, against uh, drenaline. So I think that it's good that people think about uh, the trigger point, but I think that we, we should not spend too much against this paper. Yeah. For example, when we read this paper, most of the theories that these authors defend um, and use for against the trigger point are not accepted today because they are very old. We have we can see in this reference list papers published in uh, around 50 years ago. So it's not it doesn't it doesn't sense, it has not sense to see that papers published 50 years ago can be applied today because we know that the evidence has changed very uh, quick in the last year. So why this paper needs to be considered. I think that, okay, we have one paper against the trigger point, but it doesn't matter. They, uh, the fact, Jan Domelhor and Rob, uh, Bob Gewin, one of my friends, have written another excellent paper in the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapies. I suppose that most of the people that is attending us know this um, uh, journal published by Elsevier. And in this paper, they rebate all the things, all the theories, Yes. that this paper rejects about trigger points. Yeah. So they demonstrate that all the theories that has been defended in this paper are not wrong, but are all and cannot be applied at this moment. So I think that this paper is one of the papers that we have or we, we should to discuss. But I think that it doesn't matter because it's only one paper. Always a medical doctor, rheumatologist, people will go against trigger point, their kneeling, neurodynamics, spinal manipulation. So I think that it's one paper and we don't need to spend more time against this one because it doesn't matter to my opinion. 
Sure. Well, that, that's great. And um, thank you for that. Uh, I know it's a, a tough question to begin with, but all the other ones are really easy, so you'll be fine. <laughs> now, the next I, one... I, I would like to, to ask if all people understand me, because you know that I'm from Spain and okay. English is not my first language. Right. I don't know if people can raise the hand. I don't know. Okay, that's a, that's a good question. Okay, let's ask our, our audience, and I can see hands going up uh, at the moment. Can yeah, or down, maybe down, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we want the thumbs up, don't we? So, uh, yeah, let's uh, just ask you, just put your thumbs up or the, the hands up. If we can understand uh, uh, Dr. De Las Peñas and we can understand his... Uh, uh, wonderful Spanish accent. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we're, we're getting a, a lot of responses of, of the affirmative. Okay. So that's all. No, I'm relaxed. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you're doing well. Thank you very much. And, and always, uh, your uh, um, English is much better than my Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> now, my next question to you, another controversial <laughs> one, but perhaps not as uh, pointed as my first opening question is those who criticize dry needling therapists often talk about there being a poor inter-rater reliability when identifying myofascial trigger points. Uh, literature does, however, show there's good reliability. Barbero, 20, 2012, Gerwin, 1997. But this, this um, group that we're talking about in this type of research was experienced physiotherapists doing the palpation. So people say, well, you, you have to have uh, experienced people feeling these things. My, my view on that, and I'm interested to know what yours is, is that it's a silly argument to say, well, you, you have to have experienced people who can then feel myofascial trigger points. It's a bit like saying that when you uh, do a cortisone injection, a doctor does one of those, it's not effective unless the person injecting the treatment area is experienced in locating the correct site for the injection. Of course, you have to have experienced people doing something, someone who is trained. What's your thoughts on that? I think that this is one of the most important questions uh, on trigger point because I think that I usually teach to all my students when I teach uh, several courses on drainiling or manual therapy for the management of trigger points yeah. that proper treatment need a clear diagnosis of the trigger point yeah. because we cannot treat anything that we cannot find and this is one of the big problems for uh, many muscles of that we found in the in the body this is the key because we can only the, make the diagnosis with palpation yeah. before we uh, for example insert a kneeling into a, a patient we need to to know if there is a trigger point in this muscle sometimes in some muscles we cannot find it because with manual palpation because there are uh, deep muscles. For example, we cannot palpate the suboccipital muscles, but maybe we can suspect for the clinical aspect of the patient that this uh, muscle will have uh, a referred pain to the head or another thing. But the problem is that the manual skills are highly relevant for the trigger point diagnosis. This is one of the big um, difficult things to do in clinical practice because um, people that have not experienced maybe cannot find all the trigger points that a patient will have and a more experienced physical therapy can be more effective not because the technique is better it's not because he has found more trigger points or the real trigger points that other physical therapists maybe have not found. I think that in the literature there are many quality studies investigating the reliability of the trigger points. You have commented two of the good ones that has found that there are moderate 
or high reliability depending of the of the finding of the trigger points. However, we need to recognize that some muscles are highly re reliable. For example, infraspinatus or the upper trapezius are superficial muscles, yeah. and we can palpate easily. Yeah. However, if we ask for uh, other deep muscles, for example, the quadratus lumbarum or the suboccipital muscles, mm. these deep muscles can be low reliability in the, into the palpation because mm. some people, some physical therapists or manual therapists cannot find or cannot feel the muscles uh, against another more superficial muscle. So I think that it would be different to make the distinction between reliability of superficial muscles yes. and the reliability of the deep muscles because I'm sure that it would be different. Mm -hmm. Another thing, an important thing that uh, we need to consider for the studies is that all the studies has used each diagnosis criteria for the trigger point. We know that we have many things or many findings uh, during the physical examination to make the diagnosis. For example, we need the toad one. We can use the local switch response. We need to find the tender spot or the trigger points. Yes. We can uh, use the refer pain for confirming the trigger point. Also, there are other people using the resting rate of motion or the um, uh, pain during contraction. So if you see these studies, they say, okay, the toad band has this reliability, yes. the tender spot has this reliability, the referred pain has this reliability. But we need the definitive uh, study supporting the reliability of, okay, I am physical therapist and I say, okay, you have a trigger point in this muscle. Okay, not, the, not only isolated signs, the diagnosis, because maybe I can have a toad band, but only just a thought one is not a trigger point. We need more clinical sign. So yes. I think that we need the definitive uh, study confirming that the diagnosis of active trigger points or latent trigger points in a patient can be reliable with the diagnosis of a clear uh, pattern of a clinical sign, all the clinical sign, not just one per one, as the previous studies have been done. So I think that we need a more clinical study to make the definitive conclusion on the reliability of the trigger point diagnosis. Excellent. That, that's a great answer. And uh, it's really no different, uh, the entity of the trigger point, uh, as you wouldn't use a trigger point alone to diagnose somebody, just like you wouldn't say that if somebody is tender in the knee, then they definitely have a knee condition such as osteoarthritis or a medial collateral problem. You have to do other things. There have to be other things present. So it's really nothing different about trigger points uh, compared to other findings on examination. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that this is one, just one piece of the pathway. So it's only the my, my muscle tissue uh, examination. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, now now let's just go on to uh, one of the interesting studies that you've done. You've done so many, uh, it's uh, been hard to choose. But I've, I've chosen one here that you did a study uh, 2014 where you were comparing short-term outcomes between trigger point dry needling and trigger point manual therapy for the management of chronic mechanical neck pain. So you, you're comparing manual therapy with dry needling. And um, tell us about that study. What did you find and what were the interesting things that you got out of it? Okay, uh, this study uh, it was very important because um, usually there is a huge debate um, asking if we need to dry needling the trigger point or just with manual therapy can uh, get the same clinical results on, on our patients. So this was the objective of the study. If we see this study, 
Uh, we found that both therapy, manual therapy and brain were very similar for get clinical results for improvement in pain and in disability. So if we add to a clinician, both techniques are similarly effective. There is another study published, I think, in the following month after our study or in 2015, I think it's in clinical rehabilitation that also support very similar results, that manual therapy are very similar or very effective, similarly effective than drain for the management of neck pain. Mm -hmm. So clinically, I think that we can always I have defend both things, drenaline and manual therapy, because many people say, no, drenaline is the best therapeutic option for trigger point. And I say that, no, it will depend on the patient, it will depend on the muscle, it will depend on the clinical um, presentation of the patient. So this study supports that both techniques are very similar. However, we found a different um, things or between group difference between manual therapy and drain is that we get higher uh, increases of pressure pain, uh, pressure pain threshold, so we get a more hypoallergenic effect mm -hmm. on the drain uh, technique. So we get that clinically for pain and disability, drain is equally effective than manual therapy, but drain is more effective than manual therapy for increase the pressure pain threshold. So we get less sensitization mechanisms yes. after the drain than after manual therapy. This was the big difference on this study. Okay, I understand. So what the study really shows is that uh, the uh, dry needling versus manual therapy um, is similar, the, the results, but if you look at the actual procedure of uh, trigger point uh, manual therapy where we're actually uh, massaging the area or rubbing the area, how long did you uh, actually work on the, on the trigger points manually as opposed to the dry needling? Like, what did you do to uh, to compare when we're looking at just the manual therapy? Yeah, we applied the most commonly um, manual therapy, uh, manual techniques, usually commonly for the upper, we use the upper trapezius to get point as uh, the main uh, feature of neck pain. Yes. And we apply ischemic compression or simple just compression to the muscle and also a stretching of the top band is like many techniques or many massage techniques around the world use these techniques, yeah. like neuromuscular technique, yeah. strokes. We can use it. So we we apply. We want to to simulate, not really, because we never treat a patient with neck pain just with one technique. Yeah. But we uh, we want to apply the more clinically, more pragmatic approach for the upper trapezius to see if drenaline yes. is similarly different in effects that uh, these two manual these two manual therapy techniques. Sure. And the type of needling that you did, that was uh, trying to uh, elicit an, a local twitch response. Is that right? I, I lose. Let me repeat, please. Uh, I was saying when you're comparing uh, the, uh, the, the two types of therapy, you've got the manual therapy and then the dry needling. When you did the dry needling, was that uh, you were trying to elicit a local twitch response out of the trapezius? Yeah. We, we don't um, stimulate, um, stipulate how many local switch response because it's one of the questions that always when you teach drenaline to the students mm. ask how many local switch responses we need to inactivate trigger points. And mm. my answer is it depends. We have patients with just one local switch response. Yes. There are patients with 15, 20 local switch response. Yes. It will depend if the patient is able to tolerate the drain-eating technique mm -hmm. because it's painful. Yeah. So in this study, we use the clinical approach. So 
usually during 30, 45 seconds, we apply it uh, with the aim to get the local switch response, but we don't ask how many. We yeah. don't record how many local switch response were um, produced on each patient. Yeah. Okay, so about 30 to 45 seconds, and yeah. within that period of time, it doesn't matter how many, it's just the period of time. Yeah, I remember one um, study um, published in a Spanish journal uh, of one of colleagues on another university that they um, tried to see the number of local switch responses uh, induce different uh, clinical response. You, they assess just one, mm -hmm. three and five, and they see that the clinical effect were the same. So it, mm. this was a very uh, small study, but mm. I think that this is the, what we clinically see because we are effective or not effective. Yes. It doesn't matter how many local switch responses. You treat the, the trigger point mm. properly, Yes. You, uh, the effect is very similar. So I think that the number is will be depend of many factors that are not related to the effectiveness. Yes, yes. Well, I, I understand. That's great. Okay. Um, now, one, you, you alluded to this before, and you, you were saying that, uh, you know, with somebody with neck pain, headaches, neck tension, and so on, in a practice, in a clinical setting, you're not really just going to treat their trapezius, and, and, and you're going to do other things. But, of course, when you're doing research, you need to uh, concentrate everything down to uh, small um, to, to interventions that only affect one muscle so that you can get uh, a result which is related to just that muscle or that intervention. The problem with that, of course, as you're sure aware, is that the external validity of research is sometimes very poor because that's not what you do in private practice. How do you overcome that? What's, what's, what's sort of the best research that you can do that you can say, you read a paper and say, yep, I can use that in my clinic, or is there no way to do that? I think that there are some uh, randomized, uh, randomized, randomized controlled trials um, looking for more pragmatic studies, saying, you know, okay, I treat this group of patients with neck pain, with brain eating in several muscles, and they explore upper trapezius, splenius capitis, scalene, levator scapulae, other muscles, and they treat it according to the clinical findings, and this will be the more pragmatic, the more clinical approach, and others uh, or against, for example, lidocaine injection or manual therapy. I think that there are some studies. In trigger point, is very difficult. The, the research is not um, in a, as high level in the clinical practice uh, as for example, spinal manipulation or other things. But I think that there are some good studies saying, okay, I treat patients with neck pain from a pragmatic point of view. So I treat all things that we have found, and we treat it with this technique or another technique. Yes. And uh, this will be the more realistic uh, practice. However, it's the same thing that with the spinal manipulation. There are very good studies. However, I don't treat a patient with neck pain only just treating the trigger points. Yeah. So yeah. this is the muscle. So the problem thing is, okay, I will need to do joint techniques, muscle techniques, maybe the posture, maybe um, education, maybe uh, many things. So it's very, very difficult to, to find a study reproducing exactly the clinical practice because we don't treat two patients with neck pain with the same techniques. Yes. So I think that one, one, one important or good question for answer is that we made some studies some years ago saying, okay, if we have a patient, for example, with ankle pain yes. or heel pain, okay, we treat with many techniques. With, um, there are some studies looking for the joint technique, mobilization of the supertalar joint, other things. 
my question is, okay, we need to introduce trigger point, and we made some studies saying, okay, we compare many things of joint techniques against the same techniques with trigger point therapy. So I think that the inclusion of more tissues into the same uh, treatment approach will be the future of other, uh, other trials, because it doesn't matter to say, okay, which is better, spinal manipulation or trigger point therapy? Mm. In clinical practice, it doesn't exist, because I, I use both yeah. approaches for a patient with neck pain. Yeah. So I think that we need to try with time because it's not easy. Yes. Because if we if we did a patient if, in a study with or similarly than in clinical practice, I cannot say okay the improvement are for this technique, this other technique, this procedure, this thing. So we need to adapt the literature to the clinical practice. Yes, yes. That's great. I mean, that reiterates everything that uh, I normally say to students when I'm teaching, that uh, like all these things, there's no black and white answer. It's a combination of factors. It depends on so many variables. And uh, as I say, when you're in the sharp end of treating patients in a, a private practice setting or in a hospital or wherever you're treating, you have to bring everything together and decide what the best uh, possible treatment is for your patient given their particular presentation, the time you have, your experience, your knowledge and so on. So uh, that's great to, to hear you confirm that, uh, Cesar. Yeah, completely. I agree. Okay, so let's move on to something that, uh, of course, you, you're, you're very interested and done a lot of research in tension-type headaches, uh, cervicogenic headaches, uh, a diagnosis and management. And, and you've, uh, you've written a, a wonderful book uh, about this subject, which I'd like to congratulate you on. Uh, headaches are such a big part of what we see as manual therapists. What caused your interest in tension-type headaches? Yeah, this is a um, this question has a funny answer. Uh, I I start uh, to a, a research on headaches in I think it's 2004, 2005. Yeah. Because one of my um, co colleagues at the university it was a neurologist, mm. and he has tension type headache from one year ago, and she was um, in in front of my desk, and always she was not crying but affected by the the headache and I say, okay, I can try to see if, if you are, if you get better with the physical therapy. And she doesn't believe in, in physical therapy for the headaches and mm. he, okay, he proved. And he was almost relieved with, after two, three sessions, she was incredible about the results. And she says, okay, I have another good um, uh, neurologist that would like to research on tension type headache. And it was the beginning. Yes. So you got some great results with a patient that was... Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think that all the, the topics that I have researched on headache, on carpal tunnel syndrome, and elbow pain, I think that all... Uh, all uh, also, I have uh, do many things, I, I like too much. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> on shoulder pain are because I know that this is very good examples to see how is the effectiveness of physical therapy because in clinical practice, I started my clinical practice in 2000 and I saw many good results. So I think that tension type headache is one of the headaches that no neurologist wants to do it because the drugs are not effective. So are, the, are those patients that neurologists doesn't want to see? So, okay, this is the patients for the physical therapist. 
Okay, so you got great results, and it's also poorly treated by other uh, disciplines. And uh, so this is this is what uh, brought your interest in it. You, you thought you could make a difference with the research that you've done. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, um, I need you to uh, tell us this in plain English, and uh, so the answer to this question, so that we can all understand the relevance. One of the most interesting points that you discuss is the importance of the trigeminal cervical complex in the transference of painful sensations between the head, neck, and face. Could you explain this in a simple way to us? Okay. Um, the trigeminal cervical nucleus caudalis or the same thing that the trigeminal cervical complex, there is different names for the same thing, um, is the anatomical region or area where the trigeminal nerve and the upper cervical spine converge. So we know that we have the three upper cervical spine nerves, C1, C2, yeah. and C3, yeah. and the trigeminal nerve yeah. innervating the face. So within the spinal cord, after the uh, trigeminal nerve go outside of the cranium, there is a nucleus or anatomical fusion between upper cervical spine and the trigeminal nerve. So this explains, this is an anatomical relationship. So this explains why all tissues, either muscles, joint, ligament, cranial dura, either tissues related to the trigeminal nerve or the upper cervical spine, for example, the masseter muscle or the temporalis muscle in the trigeminal nerve or the suboccipital muscles or the upper trapezius muscle, all of these muscles refer pain to the head because there is an anatomical relationship and the input goes to the head always. You, you will not find, a, for example, a suboccipital muscle making a refer pain to the shoulder because it's innervated for the trigeminal cervical nucleus caudalis. Right, you have, uh, you've just, uh, let, let's, this is a good, a good opportunity here that you've uh, explained this to us. Let's ask our audience if they understood that. How about that? That'll be a good test. Now, put your hands up if you understood that explanation, because that was an excellent explanation in plain English. Let's go for it. So who says yes? Put your hands up. The numbers are going up. Cesar, that's good. Good news. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Okay, so um, the 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 um, explanation you, you you gave us there. Uh, how can we apply this clinically? Which one? Well, you said about the uh, cervical uh, the, the headaches, the cervical uh, tension. You're looking at uh, structures around C1, 2, and 3. Would we be looking at uh, working around the suboccipitals, the capitus? What should we do? Yeah, with that? The clinical application is IEC. Yes. For example, when I have a patient with TMD pain or with orofacial pain or with headache, we cannot start into the head. We need to start in, at least in the cervical spine because the upper cervical spine is related to the head. Yeah. So at least I always teach, okay, you need to first start at least in the upper cervical spine. But we know for the interregional dependence that upper cervical spine is related to the medium, medium and the lower cervical spine and this one to the thoracic spine. So I think that the anatomical relationship makes the justification or justifies how the uh, different regions or different anatomical areas like the thoracic spine are related or can be used or introduced into the clinical practice for treating patients with headaches. For example, we know that the sympathetic 
nerve system of the head is in the thoracic spine. So if you ask me, do you manipulate or do you make any um, technique into the thoracic spine for treat the headache? And I always answer yes, because there is biomechanical relationship with the cervical spine, yes. and there is a sympathetic nerve relationship with the upper cervical spine and with the head. So we need to have an input from the manual therapy techniques into all tissues or all areas that can be uh, related to the trigeminal nerve uh, trigeminal cervical nucleus caudalis. So the clinical relation or the clinical application is that we need to treat all things that can be influenced by different inputs into this uh, nucleus caudalis. Okay, so what you're saying here is that uh, if we're going to affect the nucleus caudalis, then and C1 to 3, like like a, a therapist, experienced therapist do all around the world, you need to look uh, with a, a holistic a, a, a approach in not just looking at where the pain is, where they're tender. Have a look at the thoracic spine. Have a look yeah. at what's happening further away from the uh, presenting area of pain because that's going to get better results for you than just focusing in on pain. And also the other thing is that anyone can focus in on uh, pain spots. Like the patient comes in and says it hurts here, you work there. But the real clever side is to look at the anatomy, look at the physiology and uh, the neuroanatomy and say, well, where is this pain? Where could it be coming from? And as you say, in the cervical spine, we could be looking at the uh, for, for headaches around uh, the, the cervical spine and the, the suboccipital area. We could be looking at treating the thoracic spine. Am I right? Yeah. Good. That was it. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Is that, that we, we have, I think that the anatomical um, areas um, support what we are doing in clinical practice. We need to to see, okay, why we treat uh, the thoracic spine is not because, not only biomechanics yeah. and anatomical, I think that the neurophysiology, the pain mechanisms we, uh, underlying of these techniques are the key. We know that with manual therapy now, in the last year, there are many things um, or many techniques doing for the, uh, that we have neurophysiological effects. So yeah. I think that this is most important than the biomechanics the neurophysiological pain mechanisms underlying or the technique that we are applying. And this is one of the, for example, good explication for this. Excellent. Okay. I'm glad that your phone is going because that makes me feel less embarrassed when my phone works. No, this is my phone. Uh, no, because I take, switch off my mobile cell phone, but not the, the home phone. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, I turned that off, but I didn't turn off the mobile, which is uh, very bad. Anyway, so uh, let's just get to some questions. We've got uh, somebody asked, a, not a technical question, uh, well, it probably is actually, probably an IT question. Is there a video? No, you're definitely not uh, supposed to see a video of us. Uh, we wouldn't want that. So there's, you're not missing out on anything here. And um, anyway, any other questions that you want to uh, put to Cesar, then please send them uh, now so I can uh, ask Cesar in a moment. So before we get to your questions, uh, we'll just keep going with uh, some more of mine. Now, uh, let's get uh, clinical now. You're a therapist just like uh, us here listening to you. And what I'd really like to know is, what do you actually do? What do you find is most effective as far as needling goes, dry needling, for the average patient? I know this is a difficult question to ask specifically, but in general, what are the muscles that are the culprits that you normally like to needle for someone with just uh, general headaches, tension type headaches, 
and uh, what do you find success with? Okay, so if you ask which muscles um, respond very well or yes. better uh, to danini, yes. for the for example, uh, in headaches, the upper trapezius yes. are a good uh, target for drenilin because it's not it's slightly painful, but drenilin is high effective for reduce the referred pain to the head. Yes. I always put this example to the students. Yes. When I have a patient and I identify a trigger point in the upper trapezius muscle and the referred pain reproduces the headache, yes. we can treat with manual therapy. The patient is afraid of, of the brain healing, but uh, if not, you can make the brain healing and the effectiveness for release the referred pain is very high and quick. A yes. patient, maybe for example, can go to the clinic with headache, yes. you make the treatment, anything, and you drain healing, and the referred pain is almost gone, it will depend, no? but it's very effective, and the patient say, okay, I don't have now headache, but my neck pain my, by my neck is too fatigated. So the, refer, the effectiveness is too high, but the problem is that we have trigger point drainage soreness, and in the upper trapezius, it's very effective, but usually induce yes. one, two days of drainage soreness. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because you, your objective is to take off or to release the headache. So I think that the upper trapezius is a, a very good muscle. Other muscle, but not in the head, in the shoulder, is uh, the infraspinatus. Mm. I love I, I like all yeah. I love the think that is a key muscle for the shoulder pain, yeah. and usually a forgotten muscle because many therapies I think in the supraspinatus, the pectoralis, the major pectoral, the pectoralis major, the suprascapularis, but the infraspinatus respond very well to the needle. Excellent. Okay. I love infraspinatus. It's uh, my favorite muscle and I find it very effective for uh, rotator cuff, frozen shoulder uh, and in combination with uh, the supraspinatus, uh, lat dorsi, deltoids. It's a great one to treat and it has a, a lot of um, distal effects, in fact, uh, in the hand as well. So you've yeah. got... Uh, Many people... Uh Many people with uh, refer infraspinatus refer pain can mimic carpal tunnel syndrome. Yeah, yeah. There is some studies demonstrating that the refer pain, uh, many people with maybe not hand, but elbow pain or pain in the shoulder and the arm. Yeah. As also the cause or one of the causes is the refer pain from the trigger points. Yeah. I've, uh, I've read your paper on the carpal tunnel syndrome. It's a wonderful uh, paper. And uh, yeah, it's a great one. There's a question here I've got for you, Cesar. Uh, it's from Brandon who says, uh, I'm interested if Cesar feels it's important to address the spinal contributions with needling, e.g., for example, when he needles the upper trapezius. Do you also needle C3-4 area as well? I'm imagining that he's talking about needling the... Uh, yeah. This is the gun approach. Um, I don't draw needling. Uh, I I make this approach, but not with drenning. I explain me. For example, if I have a trigger point in the upper trapezius muscle, yeah. I I treat manually with drenning, and I we need to treat the spinal cord of this muscle. In this case, C3 and C4. But I don't draw needling the multifidus muscle of this level. I usually I prefer, for example, spinal manipulation, PA mobilization, any technique to disjoint. Uh, so I agree in the treatment and the segmental treatment of the muscle, yeah. but I don't like to drain in this, this segmental muscle because it's um, a grat um, gratuity 
drainage for the patient because usually the multifidus can be affected, if I agree, but I prefer to make a joint technique complementary to the uh, muscle technique. So the, the concept is the same, but I don't, I don't dry kneeling the, the multifidus level or the multifidus muscle of the level related to the trigger point. Okay. And and you, you, you brought up an interesting point there before when we were talking about tension headaches. Uh, you said that um, when you're needling the upper traps, that it's very effective in getting rid of the headache, but it can leave the patient quite sore afterwards. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, now that often happens, and, and certainly when I'm teaching on courses and uh, people have been needling and so on, they're quite tight, even tighter than they were in the first place. They, they didn't, And they didn't have a headache in the first place anyway because they're just practicing. So that's one of the problems with dry needling, that uh, with deep dry needling, you can get people who uh, are, put, are quite sore afterwards. Another one is when you're needling uh, soleus or needling the gastrox, uh, people will often uh, find that it's difficult then to stretch, they want to stretch out their calf muscles afterwards. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, yes. For example, uh, gastronemius, when I treat many professional runners, yes. and they know that they, when they come to my clinic to, to treat the soleus or the gastronemius, they cannot work during the 15-20 minutes after the treatment. Not cannot work, but they have a good soreness into the muscles. Yeah. These muscles are very painful during the treatment, and induce high muscle soreness. I completely agree. Sure. Okay. All right. So um, we've got um, a, a few more questions here that uh, from me. Uh, okay. You did this uh, really good study, uh, interesting study for about um, rock climbers and um, a tennis elbow or lateral epicondalgia. And uh, tell me about it. You, you, you did this study. Uh, when was that? In 2011. That's right. Tell me about that study. Yeah, it was a um, it was a case series because it, this was, for example, a more pragmatic study because mm -hmm. we take um, I, I don't remember how uh, exactly it was ten or twelve patients that we we treat many climbers in our clinic. Yes, we have the two huge group. We have many professional climbers or professional runners or professional boxers, so elite sport players mm -hmm. from the first uh, division, and also we have. The very bad patients with fibromyalgia, with tension and headache from 20 years, with chronic daily migraine. So we have the all the spectrum of the patient. Yeah. And we believe that the trigger point is um, the first therapeutic option for, for example, sport players. Because the sport players need pain during the treatment. Or we know that if you apply a non-painful technique, usually the sport players will say, okay, I need painful. And for example, we saw that uh, in the wrist extensor muscles, the draining is extremely, extremely effective. Right. So it was a case series that we apply clinically. So we decide, okay, we have uh, climbers into our clinic. We will uh, have the, the data collection in our clinic. Um, when we finish or one year after, we say, okay, we have 12 patients. We make the analysis and we see what happened. And it was the case series. It was not was a real trial because there is no control group, there was no randomization, it was just a case series that we we believe that it was interesting to see how integrate joint approach, mulligan approach, TMG, exercise, TMG, uh, drainaging, exercises, so this was a pragmatic clinical study because we treat the patients with a multimodal approach. Yeah, in fact, uh, you mobilized C5-6 was one of, it was your intervention, wasn't it? Yeah, because we, we want to stimulate the central nerve system. Sometimes you know that there is a huge debate uh, 
today about the hypermobility. Yeah. Because many people believe that we don't need to, uh, it doesn't matter where you apply the manipulation that the effect is the same. Mm-hmm. There is a debate about if we need to make the diagnosis of hypermobility or no. I think that is very difficult. I think that sometimes we, we need to be prudent about the answer because I believe that we need to be precise into the manipulation. For mm-hmm. example, I cannot go to the neck and make a manipulation without any control and anything that happens yes. because there are patients with osteoarthritis, with hernia disc that maybe it can be feel worse after the manipulation. Yes. But sometimes we need to search for the neurophysiological effect. We know that the spinal manipulation has a good neurophysiological effect. Clinically, there is some reviews saying that the mobilization and the manipulation of the mid and the lower cervical spine are clinically similar. The yeah. clinical effects are the same. But we know that the neurophysiological mechanisms are different. Yeah. So in this study, we want to make a stimulation of the central nerve system with this uh, segment. So it was not for the hypermobility, it was from the neurophysiological point of view. Excellent. Okay, so and you mentioned that uh, needling the extensor muscles of the wrist and fingers was uh, very effective with uh, respect to uh, lateral elbow pain. Sí, yeah. yeah. I, I think that if you include trigger point granulating into elbow pain, yeah. you reduce the number of treatment. Sure. It has, we have many data. It's not just only the treatment. We treat with many things, but if you include trigger point yeah. dry kneeling, the wrist extensor, the effectiveness is duplicate is two, three uh, higher at least. Excellent. Okay, so uh, we're looking at uh, extensor carpi radialis. We're looking at extensor digitorum, extensor carpi ulnaris. Uh, you're looking at those uh, nice muscles there on the back of the arm, uh, uh, which was you mentioned. But what about again going back to not just looking at where the pain is? For instance, brachialis is a muscle that can refer to the lateral elbow. Do you use that in your um, approach? Not in this study, but just generally. Yeah, we found that uh, the brachioradialis is very important for elbow pain because it crosses the humeroradial joint. Um, it also has referred pain to the head. This is, for example, important in boxers that they work with the elbow flex. Yes. And when they have um, um, an injury into the wrist, the brachioradialis is very important because it's usually shortening in this in, in this sport in this sport because they, they box with the elbow flex and the brachioradialis is is shortening. So oh. in clinical practice we always include the ex- examination of this muscle in patients with elbow pain or, or yeah. hand pain also. What about what about brachialis though? Ah brachialis. Brachialis it would be the pain. I think that the Biceps brachialis is more important than the brachialis. Okay. But usually, I don't like. I don't usually. No, I don't like it. It's yeah. better word. Uh, Drainling the biceps. I like more the manual therapy because I can go deep. Yes. And probably we treat indirectly the brachialis muscle yes. when we treat the biceps. Biceps brachialis muscle. Sure. So I think that is an, a, a, an indirect treatment on this muscle, but it's not a muscle that I thought at the beginning of. Yes. Of the treatment. Okay, so yeah, which would be common with the boxes that you treat, having a look at shortening in the biceps there. Would you would you find that? No, yeah, yeah. Many people that cannot uh, extend the, the the elbow because they have a not huge uh, bicep, but it has a shortening biceps, and we need to stretch and to treat, and because they cannot stretch the elbow, and when they they fight and they um, put with a a straight a punch, 
Yes. They cannot split the elbow and they injure the elbow because mm -hmm. the, the bicep is um, shortening. Yes, yes. So that's going to load up the uh, extensors and then you're going to get problems there. But if you don't fix the biceps that's shortened in the first place, you're going to continue the problem, right? Yeah. And also the cervical spine. I think that one, one important thing for the adrenaline and the trigger point therapy is, okay, we need to treat the muscle or we need to treat the trigger point that reproduces the, the pain. Yes. But we need to treat the cause that has induced this trigger point. Mm -hmm. For example, if we have a bad technique into the straight punch with the, with the wrist, in, this, in the case of the boxers, with the wrist inflection and not in neutral position or slightly extension, it will be a pair again. Yeah. If I have a tightness bicep, it will be a pair again. If I have um, a problem into the cervical spine, it will appear again. So I think that we need to treat the, the trigger point that is reproducing the pain but we need to treat the cause or the perpetrating factor or the causative factor of the refer of the trigger point. Sure, no, that, that's great. This is the more difficult things. It, this is the more we always we we, we have we need to have an, an holistic approach always. Always, absolutely. And that's one of the, the the fantastic things about what we do. That uh, you go to work and you see somebody with with a presentation. And the uh, the cause is not always obvious. It's not where they're complaining of pain, but you, you're a detective. You, you're trying to find out what's causing the pain, what's what's missing, what, what's the, what's the the story and the history, and put everything together and come up with a plan, which is uh, why yeah. we. Do it. Now uh, I've got a question that actually uh, will answer. A, a previous uh, question uh, from Glenn and another one from Brandon here. So now you, you use, you're using mostly uh, deep dry needling, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, but what if you've got somebody who complains of fibromyalgia or has got chronic re regional pain syndrome? They don't like needles. They're highly sensitive. There's many of those people, and they don't want to be um, having a needle pushed in and out of their uh, leg or their muscles uh, uh, or the, the, whatever part of their body we're treating. What's your approach? There are some people who uh, do superficial needling uh, rather than deep needling. How do you approach those people who are in that category of not wanting deep dry needling? No, I think that dry uh, needling is not the best uh, therapeutic option. It's one of, of our uh, strategies of, uh, of treatment. So we have patients that they doesn't need or doesn't want to be kneeling, yeah. not only fibromyalgia, people with, I have climbers, professional climbers, that doesn't want to be drenilling because they are afraid, so it's, yeah. it's okay. Yeah. I have, for example, I have not, not treated never a CPR patient because they, they don't go to the clinic, but I have treated many uh, hundred patients with fibromyalgia, and we have very good or very not bad, but very good or no results with the drenilin. So it's like in all patients. We have patients with fibromyalgia that love the drenilin. Other one that they say, I have no effect with this treatment, so I don't want to, to be applied again. So in these cases, I don't try to the superficial drenilin. If a patient doesn't improve with deep drenilin or they doesn't want, uh, they don't uh, they don't want to have to receive the drenilin, I don't practice anyone either superficial or deep draining. So at, we treat with many other things, exercise, pain education, manual therapy, myofascial release, soft tissue techniques, spinal manipulation, many things. We usually, or sometimes, we apply superficial draining into the ligaments. 
Because I believe that the superficial drainings into the muscle, it doesn't make sense because you need to reach the muscle tissue to get the real effect of the deep drainings. Okay. So I, I prefer to use the superficial drainings into ligaments or in tendon, but not in muscle. This is a personal opinion because I believe that the deep drainings is the better target for the muscle. And superficial drainings is like the acupuncture, but it's not the same point. We can apply, in, for example, in ankle sprain for the for the ligaments or in uh, knee tendinopathy, tendinopathy for the for the patellar tendon. So I think that we apply, but in all patients, not just only that doesn't uh, doesn't want to have the deep drainage. So we use the superficial drainage when we need. So it doesn't matter. I got you. Okay, that, that's understood. I, I hope that uh, makes sense, uh, Glenn and uh, Brandon. Okay, now uh, we're getting near to the end of our um, webinar now. I've got one more question before I let you go. Uh, now, you did this study, uh, let's see, when was that? That was uh, 2010. And you did a study on chronic tension headaches when you looked at referred pain areas of active myofascial trigger points in the head, neck, and shoulder muscles in chronic, chronic tension type headaches. What did you find? Oh, we have done many, uh, sorry, go many studies. Yes. This. So this one that you uh, prefer, it was like, um, how do you say, um, a collage, um, a puzzle of other studies, our real studies on each muscle tension type headache was published in 2006, 7, and 8, where we changed the, the thinking about the trigger points and, and headache, and we 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 published the, a pain model of tension type headache on on trigger points. But in general, all the studies that we have published about uh, tension type headache, we have published around 50 papers on tension type headache and muscles, mostly, yes. uh, is that we get or we are able to reproduce the tension type headache pattern with the referred pain from the trigger points. Uh. This is important because tension type headache is considered a primary headache. Yes. But the question is that no neurologist knows what is the beginning of tension type headache. In migraine, another primary headache, mm. they ask about the, the, heminal, the heminovascular system yeah. activation so we can get a primary cause. But in tension type headache, nobody knows what is the cause of the tension type headache. Yeah. And when a patient, for example, with tension type headache that has pain from 10 years ago and they have take pills, drugs, antidepressants, any other medical uh, drugs, and they doesn't get any relief of the pain. And when you touch the muscle and you reproduce the headache, and they say, okay, yes, this is the, the pain that I feel, they are able to recognize that maybe one of the big causes, probably not the only one, but one of the big causes of tension type headache is the referred pain from the trigger points. Yeah. So I think that the huge uh, discovered, or not discovered, the confirm clinical confirmation of this study was that the referred pain from the trigger points can reproduce almost 90-95% of the pain pattern of a patient with tension type headache. Gotcha. So is, is this where the spatial summation comes in? Because I know you, you, you talked about yeah. that in that study. We believe in the spatial summation and the temporal summation. For example, a, a spatial summation, it will be people with more trigger points. It will be have bigger extension of the referred pain. We found mm -hmm. that patients with just one trigger point into the upper trapezius maybe can have unilateral headache. Yeah. Of mostly unilateral. Yes. But patients with occipital muscles, to the point upper trapezius and um, 
stenocleidomastoid, we have pain in more areas of the head, so it would be a spatial summation. But also temporal is important because patients can have trigger points from 10, 15 years ago. And this is important because if we follow the clinical history of almost, not all, but almost 95% of the patients with tension type headache, in this case I would put the example of chronic. Yeah. They have, when they go to the clinic, they have, okay, I feel uh, headache 20 days per month. So it's huge uh, chronic tension type headache. But if you ask at the beginning, they say, no, no, I always have headaches. I start, for example, 20 years ago. But I start with one headache per month. Sometimes I have headache. Yes. Sometimes when I, I feel tired. And with time, this is the temporal summation, the time, the frequency of the headache has increased. Has increased. Yeah. I was tense because I have more headaches. I go to the doctor. They take me drugs. They doesn't work. I was more depression. I was more anxiety. I have more stress. I have more pain. So the time is also an important thing in the development of chronic pain, as in all chronic conditions. So the temporal summation and the spatial summation of the referred pain, I think, is important uh, debate to consider. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. That's fantastic. Um, that's a really nice explanation and something that I know that uh, our listeners will find very uh, helpful and uh, help them understand uh, the patients' presentations that we see every day in our clinic. Uh, let me um, round it, uh, up now and uh, just uh, uh, thank you for your time. Now, I just want to, before I do that, let me ask you uh, this question. You're an accomplished researcher, a clinician, author, academic. It took me about half an hour to read your biography. So you have two PhD, PhDs. Uh, I haven't actually asked you your age yet, but uh, let's assume that you are uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, just 21, right? And you've got two PhDs already. What are you going to research next? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> You're a young man. Um, yeah, I have 35 years old. Yes. Almost, almost 36. So wow. now today, uh, 35. Um, now we are, uh, people say uh, that I'm crazy, but now we are looking if we are able to change uh, the um, genetic uh, functioning with physical therapy. I think that we, we are starting to making some genetic studies looking if physical therapies, physical therapy responses depend on the genetics because all clinical uh, people, we say, we see that in clinical practice that at least usually 20% of the patients we cannot recover. We don't know why. There are the patients that goes to 20 physical therapies yes. and they, they doesn't improve. And we don't know why because the clinical um, presentation is not too much different from other people, yeah. but we don't know why. And I think that is interesting to see if the genetics are able to decrease the effectiveness of physical therapy. And we believe that if we are uh, able to make the genetic analysis with uh, saliva. Yes. And it's easy way to get it, and it's interesting, at least to me, to, to see different things because I'm too bored. I'm I I actually sorry for this, but to ask, what is the better, spinal manipulation or exercise? It's mm. like if you say to your daughter, what do you prefer, mommy or daddy? <laughs> it's a stupid question. It will be depend. It will be many things to do, or depend on the patient of the. So I think that we need to to ask or to to see deep into the neurophysiological aspect of the patient in, and this includes the genetic to see what is happening when we apply any technique of physical therapy or manual therapy. Okay, so you're looking at the, the genetic 
background. Is there a genetic predisposition to somebody uh, and may explain why somebody may respond well or not respond well to physical therapy? That's your next uh, uh, area of interest. No, yeah, we are doing some studies on genetics from two really? years ago. Okay. Of headaches and fibromyalgia and carpal tunnel syndrome because always the genetics is um, of increasing interest. But now we are looking if at least uh, we are looking in carpal tunnel syndrome. Yes. If the genetics uh, or, or if the effectiveness depends on the genetics. Right. Okay. And uh, that, that's a, a very interesting um, uh, look at a new and a, a new way of looking at uh, why people respond or don't respond. So uh, I'll be looking forward to more and more research from you. I'm, I'm uh, well. I, I think myself that I've got to do a bit more work because you're already thirty, nearly thirty-six, and you've got two PhDs. I'm jealous. I have to work harder. So um, thank you very much, uh, Cesar. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you tonight. And I'm sure that our audience has uh, learned a lot, uh, been inspired and uh, ha have really uh, been uh, listening to how passionate you are about what you do. And it's been really a, a pleasure to talk to you tonight. So thank you very much again, Cesar. Thank you very much for all of you. And I hope that it will be a good hour to, to discuss anything that we, we can do. Yes, and uh, we'll have you back, I'm sure, in the future, and you can tell us about what you're working on again. So uh, thanks again, and uh, have a, a great day, and uh, we'll speak soon. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Cesar. Good night. Now, for everybody else uh, who's uh, listening, don't forget that uh, we'll draw the prize for the $200 worth of uh, uh, prizes from AccuNeeds. And, of course, the other important thing is that uh, we've got uh, a wonderful book that's co-authored by Cesar and Jan Domerholt, which is the book called Manual Therapy for Musculoskeletal Pain Syndromes, an Evidence and Clinical Informed Approach. That's actually available here in Australia in July. But uh, Elsevier, our sponsors on this webinar, have kindly offered a gift voucher for a lucky uh, registrant here that I will draw out and uh, tell you the winner next week. Those of you who are asking whether this webinar will be available uh, after this presentation, yes, and we'll send it out to you. Uh, if you've registered for the, uh, the, the this webinar, then we'll send you a link to hear it again and share it with your colleagues. Uh, you'll also be able to get a CPD certificate. And don't forget, all our other interviews that we've had with experts around the world are, is available on, uh, they're all available on our iTunes channel, and I'll send you a link uh, to that uh, with uh, some more information and the link to this webinar itself. So all that's left for me is to say thank you once more. You've been wonderful. You've been very supportive. We've had 267 people register for this webinar and it's fantastic support. Really appreciate it. And that will only uh, push me on to do uh, more research, find experts around the world to bring to you and to share their knowledge with us. Thank you and good night. CPD Health Courses. Try needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face -face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses